0: Ecclesiastes chapter 7 beginning in verse 13, Consider the work of God, for who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider, God also hath set the one over against the other to the end that man should find nothing after him. All these things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. Be not righteous overmuch, neither make thyself overwise. Why shouldst thou destroy thyself? Be not overmuch wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldst thou die before thy time? It is good that thou shouldst take hold of this. Yea, also from this withdraw not thine hand, for he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. Wisdom strengtheneth the wise more than ten mighty men which are in the city. For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Also take no heed unto all words that are spoken, lest thou hear thy servant curse thee. For oftentimes also thine own heart knoweth that thou thyself likewise hast cursed others. All this have I proved by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which is far off and exceeding deep, who can find it out? I applied mine heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things and to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and her hands as bands, Whoso pleaseth God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. Behold, this have I found, saith the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account Which yet my soul seeketh, but I find not one man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among all those have I not found. Lo, this only have I found that God hath made men upright, but they have sought out many inventions. That's the name of this text this morning, living wisely in an absurd world. Wouldn't you agree that the world is absurd today? I mean, it's just out of kilter The things that God calls sin, we don't call sin anymore. And, you know, it's just about what God calls up, we call down. And in what God calls in, we call out. And all of these things, we live in an upside down, absurd world. Now, I want to warn you, I'm probably going to deal with these verses from the seventh chapter of Ecclesiastes the way no one else has ever dealt with them. I don't know if you've heard any messages from these verses, but if you have, it's probably going to be different than anybody else has ever shared with you. But I believe they teach us how to live wisely in an absurd world. And so we're not going to go verse by verse. We're going to skip around and you just stay with me as we look at these verses. Now, the first thing we need to do is to get some things. I mean, just grab hold of some things before we ever start looking at these verses. And here's the main thing we need to get. And that is in verse 12. And here's what it says in chapter 7, verse 12. Wisdom giveth life to them that have it. We're going to talk about wisdom. We're going to talk about two kinds of wisdom. We're going to talk about wisdom under the sun. And we're going to talk about wisdom over the sun. We're going to talk about godly wisdom and we're going to talk about human wisdom as we go through this message this morning. Now, chapter 7, verse 12 says that wisdom is a defense for us. That's godly wisdom. It says this wisdom gives life. And without godly wisdom, as a child of God, we try to go through this world, we're going to have some difficulties. We're going to have some problems if we just try to make it in the world without godly wisdom. Now, if you look down to verses 23 through 26, Solomon describes his search for wisdom, but it's not godly wisdom. It's under the sun wisdom. It's human wisdom. And he describes that search. And here's what he's saying, basically. He said, I've learned it the hard way. Okay. Okay. The other day, that made me think of a song I loved for years, and the title of the song is this, I've Learned the Hard Way Every Time. And that sort of describes my life. It may describe yours too. But Solomon's saying, I've learned it the hard way. Probably many of us here this morning are graduates of the School of Hard Knocks, okay? <laughs> the school of life that we have been through. In verse 23, Solomon said this. He said, I will be wise. And so that was his desire. Remember, God said he would give him the capacity for gaining wisdom, for gaining knowledge, for reading and studying and applying all of these things. So he just says, I am going to be wise. And so he lived much of his life in pursuit of human wisdom, in pursuit of wisdom under the sun. Verse 25, he says, I apply mine heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom, does it look like he's really giving some effort here? He's not just saying, okay, Lord, drop wisdom on me. He's saying, I want to learn. I want to know. I'm going to read. I'm going to study. I want to be a wise person. If you look back to chapter 1, verse 17, he said this, I gave my heart to know madness and folly. He said in chapter 2, verse 3, I sought to lay hold on folly. And he said in chapter 2, verse 12, I turn myself to behold folly. And if you notice, he says that he wanted to know the wickedness of folly or foolishness and of madness. So he's giving himself to just understand all of this from a human standpoint. And in fact, what he does, and this is his reference to women right here. I don't think he's a woman hater, okay? Okay. I think Solomon is not just referring to women in general, but if you'll look back to Proverbs chapter nine for just a moment, he talks about a woman in Proverbs chapter nine. And in fact, many commentators refer to this woman as the woman folly. So he is comparing here in chapter nine, women are a woman and folly. And he says in verse 13, a foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knoweth nothing for she sitteth at the door of her house on a seat in the high places of the city to call passengers who go right on their ways. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither and as for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, stolen waters are sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he knoweth not that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of hell. That's folly. Folly sits at the door is what he's saying. Folly sits there and calls people who pass by. Don't we live in a world where folly is just calling people today? Foolishness and madness is just calling people like sitting right in a doorway saying, come on in, come on in, enjoy this, partake of this. Hey, you only go around once in life, right? And you're supposed to do what? Grab for all the gusto you can. I hate to bring that commercial up, but I heard that many years ago, and that's what people said. And so just live it up, just have fun, just enjoy folly and foolishness. And so she invites them in. And he said they don't even know that what is inside is death, and they just rush on in. And that describes our world today. In fact, if you look at verse 26, look what he says. I find more bitter than death This woman folly, that's who he's talking about. That's who he's comparing things to here. Whose heart is snares and nets and her hands are as bands. And he says the sinner is going to be taken by her. The person who lives for the flesh, the person who just lives this life without regard to God is just a prime target for foolishness, for wickedness and for folly. And they're going to get involved in it. But look at what else he says in that 26th verse. Only whoso pleases God has the ability to escape her. You know the best way to escape foolishness and the best way to escape folly in your lives? You have a relationship with God. You have a fellowship with God. You get into the word of God. You live by the word of God. You trust God. You depend upon God. And that's the best way to escape foolishness and folly. Now, in verse 19, he talks about a different kind of wisdom. He says, it is the wisdom that strengtheneth the wise more than ten mighty men which are in the city. That's godly wisdom. See, you can live by human wisdom. You can live by folly. You can live by foolishness. Are you and I can live by godly wisdom? We get to decide which way we want to live. And verse 18, I believe, is the key to our understanding as we look at these verses. It is good, he says, that thou shouldest take hold of this. Yea, also from this withdraw not thine hand. You know what he's saying? He said, get this. This is important. Many years ago I was in a class and they wanted everybody to pass this class and so the instructor said, now look, when I tell you something, I can't tell you what's going to be on the test, but if something might be on the test, I'll do that right before I tell you and you can make a note of it. And so we sort of Passed the test with flying colors because we knew what the questions were going to be on the test. Solomon's basically saying that. He's saying, Hey, get this. Listen to this. This is important. You need to get it. You need to hang on to it. And he goes on to say this For he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. Psalm 111, verse 10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How can I have godly wisdom? How can I live in godly wisdom? He said, you learn to fear God. You know God. You have a relationship with God. Somebody put it this way, and I like this, according to verse 18, a person who fears God deals responsibly with all of reality, not just a piece of it. You know, there are folks just one little piece of reality. No, a child of God who fears God, who serves God, who loves God, who operates in wisdom, deals with every bit of reality. And so Solomon tries to understand first the workings of God. And what we see in this seventh chapter, toward the end of the seventh chapter, he's beginning to turn back. You know, we've talked in the title of this series is Life Under the Sun. And Solomon's been trying to live life under the sun. We see him starting to turn back to God at the end of the seventh chapter. But he's tried to understand the workings of God by human wisdom. And here's what he had to say. It was far from me. I couldn't do it that which is far off and exceeding deep, who can find it? I guarantee you, you try to understand God and the workings of God, by human wisdom you will fail. Human wisdom cannot comprehend, first of all, an eternal God. Because none of us is eternal. We are everlasting. We have souls that are going to last into eternity, but we are not eternal. There was a time when you were, but there will never be a time when you are not. Okay? Okay? But God always has been and God always will be. And somebody says, I can't understand that. Well, you're in good company because I can't either. But I believe it. You know why I believe it? Because the word of God says so. So here's his conclusion to all of this. Now we're just introducing this right now. But here's his conclusion to all of this in verses 27 and 28. He said, one man among a thousand may have godly wisdom, But a woman among all these have I not found. Now, i say again, he's not a woman hater. And he's not saying women can't have wisdom. You know what he's saying, basically? There's not really anybody that I have found that's operating in godly wisdom. Completely in godly wisdom. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's rare. And I think it's rare today, even among God's people, to find folks who day in and day out, and I hate this phrase, 24-7-365, okay, that operate totally in godly wisdom. And Solomon says, can't find them. But in all of that, here's what he gives us. It's what I call, first of all, the accounting of wisdom. And he says in verse 13, consider the work of God. Just start right there, consider the work of God. You know that word consider means to... Just have a deep reflection, deep thought about it. Not just say, okay, God created the world, you know, and uh, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth and go on from there. Just sit and think about that for a while. Just consider the eternal nature of God. Just consider the love of God. Just consider the power of God. Tonight, we're gonna to talk about the holiness of God. Just try to consider the holiness. Consider deep reflective thought, consider the work of God. See, true wisdom in considering the work of God will cause us to keep our eyes toward God, all right? I'm going to tell you, I don't believe in luck and I don't believe in coincidence. I believe I serve a God, I worship God, now you do too, that can move things in our lives, move things for our lives, that can design our lives, that can lead us through our lives in a way that brings Him honor and glory in a way that's best for us. Romans 8, 28, right? All things work together to good for them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And so I really don't believe in luck, and I don't believe in coincidence. And when we consider the work of God, here's what we have to remember. God is sovereign. Nobody tells God what to do. God is God. He is above everybody, and he is above everything. And he says this, he said, we cannot alter, nor should we try to alter God's working. If God made it crooked, can you make it straight? And the answer comes back, absolutely not. Who can change the nature? And I know people are trying to today. I'm just going to tell you this. The scripture says God made them male and female. Amen. Amen. Because who can change the nature of things as God made them? And we have people today who don't want to be either. Or they want to swap from the way they were born to what they want to be. You can't change the th- nature of things that God has made and listen if God hedges your way in with thorns in other words if God closes the door are you going to try to go through it can you go through it the Lord told Jesus told the church at Philadelphia he said when I open a door no man can shut it and when I shut a door no man can open it and if his judgments come against me or you are we able to stop them God is sovereign. God can operate as God wants to operate. So he says, consider the work or the working of God. And here's what he says in verse 14. I like verse 14, it says in the day of prosperity, be joyful in the day of adversity, consider. What's he saying? You're going to have days of adversity and you're going to have days of joy. Okay. I mean, there's going to be some days you get up and say, good morning, Lord. And then some days you're going to get up and say, good Lord, it's morning. You know, I mean, it's just, it's going to be that way. You're going to have joy. You're going to have adversity. Here's what he says. On those days of prosperity, just say, thank you, Lord. Live it, love it. Do the best you can with it. On the days of adversity, he says, consider. Think about it. Why is this happening? What is God trying to show me? What is God trying to teach me as I'm going through this adversity? Remember Job? Job lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his kids. He lost his wealth. He lost his servants. Even his wife said, curse God and die. But you know what Job did? Job sat down and considered. And after considering, Job said, you know what? I'm right with God. I'm right with God. And if we really believe in the sovereignty of God... I don't believe there's anything that can happen to us outside of God's permission. God will permit it or he will not permit it. God allows prosperity and adversity as an offset to each other. Have you thought about that? What if we just had prosperity, 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 and never had adversity? You know what we'd have? We'd be having ice cream and cake all the time. And you can't eat ice cream and cake all of the time. You've got to have some nutritious food every once in a while. And sometimes adversity builds us up. And so we, we just can't have, and remember what I said last week, sunshine all the time makes what? It makes a desert. And so sometimes we need the rain. Sometimes we may need the adversity in our lives. But why did God allow adversity and prosperity as an offset to each other? Look at what he says. That man should find nothing after him. You know what that's talking about? That we can't be certain about future events. You know what that teaches? Dependence upon God. Oh, I wish I had enough money in the bank and enough health. Well, I never had to worry about anything again. Well, you wouldn't depend on God very much, would you? But when we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, then today we're going to be depending on God. We're going to, especially as God's people, be trusting Him. What does James chapter, we're just going to read it. Parts of these verses, but James chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, James says, Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, what is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time, then passes away. And in verse 15, he says, For that you ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live and we shall do this or that, over in the book of Philippians. The Apostle Paul put it this way concerning his life. He said in verse 11, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I've learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere, and in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. He didn't say, I can do everything I need to do. He said, I can do it through the Lord Jesus Christ. He had learned dependence upon God. And that's why God gives us prosperity. And God sometimes gives us adversity. So we can learn to depend upon him. The big push today. I think you've seen it in the news. I have. The big push today is to trust science. Have faith in science. Depend upon science. Science says. I'm going to tell you my opinion. I will depend upon science only as science acknowledges and depends upon God. And by the way, most science today denies and does not depend upon God. But here's what we learn. There are going to be good days. And there are going to be bad days. And you and I cannot determine which is going to be good and which is going to be bad. And here's the second thing, how quickly things often do and, and actually do change. You can be having a good day and one phone call can just turn that day completely around, can't it? And so we learn to depend upon God. And so that's what I call the accounting of wisdom. But then he tells us about the absurdity of the world. I said, we live in an absurd world. The things that God calls good, men call evil. The things that God calls evil today, men are calling good. Look at verse 15. All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. Our lives are sometimes filled with dark chapters, aren't they? Difficult times. And sometimes... We have trouble recognizing and and reconciling those dark chapters with the goodness and the holiness and and the love and the mercy of God, don't we? Well, why did this happen to me? I have seen times and, and, you know, the question is this. Why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? Have you ever wondered that? And sometimes it seems like today that the better someone is, I don't guess that's really a good word to use, but the worse someone is, the better they get. And somebody suggested Solomon may even be reflecting on his life and some of the things that he's been through right here. But this whole idea that someone could be righteous, that someone could be good and have bad things happen to them is foreign to our thinking, isn't it? That doesn't compute up here. We've always seen the good guys wear white hats. And we've always seen the good guys win all the time. But guess what? The good guys don't always win. And the good guys are not always the ones wearing the white hats. Life isn't that way. I'll give you some examples. Go to the book of Genesis. Look at Cain and Abel. Here's Abel. He offers a sacrifice, an offering to God, and God accepts it. His brother Cain... God rejects his offering. For whatever reason God rejected it, God rejects it. And what happens to righteous Abel? His brother kills him. Just murders him out there in the field. Well, that shouldn't have happened to a righteous man, should it? That's the way we think oftentimes. Look in the New Testament in the book of Acts. Here's a man named Stephen. Acts chapter 6. He was chosen to be one of the first deacons in one of the Lord's churches. And you read the qualifications. He was a man of good report. He was an honest man. He was a godly man. Then in the 7th chapter of Acts, he stands up and he gives this wonderful testimony of the history of Israel. And as he concludes that testimony, here's what he says, because he's a man full of faith, the scripture says. He says, Israel had betrayed and murdered the just one. You killed the Son of God, is what he says to them. Now, How should they react in our minds? You know, you're right, we're convicted. No. What'd they do? See, we think about them stoning Stephen, but you know what they did to him first? The scripture said they ran upon him and they gnashed him with their teeth. They began biting on him after he just told them that they had crucified the son of God. And then when he looks up to heaven and sees Christ at the right hand of God and he asks God to not lay this to their charge, they pick up rocks. And I don't mean rocks like that. I mean rocks like that. Because there's plenty of them over there. And they beat him to death with rocks. This was a righteous man. This was a man full of faith. We can talk about others. Naboth. Living according to the law. Doing what the law said. I'm not supposed to sell the land that has been in my family for all these years. The law said so. Ahab wants it. So what happens to Naboth? Jezebel cooks a, a scheme to have him killed. And righteous Naboth dies. I mentioned Job already. He suffered loss of his health, loss of his children, and the so-called friends that came to see him weren't really that good of friends. So we see that many times righteous people, good people suffer and sometimes good people die. You can look back to church history and look at all of those in church history who stood for the truth. And because they would not sacrifice the truth, some of them were horribly, horrendously put to death. And yet it seems many times that those who wouldn't give God the time of day seem to prosper. Psalm 37 verse 12, the wicked plotteth against the just and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. Verse 14, the wicked have drawn out the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy and to slay such as be of upright conversation. Psalm 73. I've talked about this psalm a lot lately, but Asaph looks and he sees how prosperous the wicked are, the ungodly are. And in fact, he says, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped until I went in To the sanctuary of God, till I went to church, till I got in the Word of God, and I found out what's going to happen to them in the end. Sometimes bad things happen to good people, and sometimes good things happen to bad people. See, the Word of God teaches us this God is no respecter of persons, it rains on the just and on the unjust. We're going to have days of prosperity and we're going to have days of adversity. And from a purely human standpoint, if you just look at it that way, purely human standpoint, folks, this world is absurd. How do you live in it? He tells us a couple of things here. And this is what I call the application of this wisdom. We've already looked at verse 14. When you're prosperous, rejoice. Be filled with joy. When adversity comes, stop and think. Consider what God's wanting. But look at verses 16 and 17. Be not righteous overmuch, neither make thyself overwise. Why should thou destroy thyself? Be not overmuch wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why should thou die before thy time? He, now he's not saying, here's what you need to do. You need to just be a little bit righteous and a little bit wicked. That's not what he's saying. Some commentators will say that. They'll say, well, Solomon's just talking about moderation here, and you ought to be, don't get overly righteous, and don't get overly wicked, but find a good place somewhere in the middle. That's not what Solomon is talking about. Let me give you two ideas of righteous overmuch or overmuch righteous. Number one is this First of all, we need to understand we have no righteousness of our own. As a child of God, the only righteousness we have is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 5.17, He hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, he who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But here's the righteousness. When he talks about overmuch righteousness, one of the things Solomon's talking about, he's talking about the so-called righteousness of the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees? And they were so self-righteous that they would look down their pious noses. And they'd see a sinner, a sinner or somebody who'd been put out of the temple for doing something that the law said they shouldn't do. And so they would look down their pious noses at people and they would consider themselves so much better than those people. And sad to say that in the Lord's churches today, we have some Pharisees. I don't think in this church, I hope not in this church, but in the Lord's churches today, there are Pharisees. Now, not of the sect of Judaism, but people who are so righteous in their own righteousness that they're going to look down their noses at other people. See, somebody said there can be overdoing and well-doing. And you can say, well, I've done so well and I'm so good, I can just condemn everybody else because they don't come up to my standard. We studied about that in Sunday school this morning a little bit. But this person doesn't come up to my standard, so I'm better than them. I'm going to look down my nose at them. But then there's another kind of righteousness that's over And that is pretend righteousness. See, pretend righteousness is no righteousness at all. Because, again, it is pretend. You know what pretend righteousness is? It's pretending to be righteous to try to get God to answer our prayers. Now, I pray that nobody has ever done that. And I'm not going to tell you whether I have or not. But we pray about something. And so, Lord, I want this to really happen. And so, I'm just going to be real good for the next however long it takes for you to answer that prayer. Guess what? You can't manipulate God. You can't fool God. God looks right into the heart and knows what we're doing. But we have this pretend righteousness. Trying to just use God for our own benefit. And some people will do that. Listen, this is what is called today the prosperity gospel. It is what's called today the Name It and Claim It, the Health and Wealth, the Word of Faith gospel. And there are a lot of preachers preaching it, and there are a lot of people falling for it. In fact, I saw a survey, and this is from several years ago, so I know the numbers are different, higher now, but 17% in that day of Christians belonged to that movement, the Name It and Claim It Prosperity gospel movement. 31% agreed. That if they gave their money to God, God would bless them with more money. I got news for you. You may give your money to God and God may not bless you with more money. Amen. Keep giving to him. 61% of those folks believe that God wants people to be materially prosperous. God is much more concerned with your spiritual prosperity than your material prosperity as a child of God. John wrote to a man named Gaius in 3 John and he said it's his prayer that you would prosper physically and materially as your soul doth prosper because Gaius was apparently a very godly individual and he was prospering spiritually. And then he says, don't be overwise. Well, what does it mean to be overwise? That's conceited of your own ability so you set yourself up as a critic or a judge for other people. You know what we call those today. By the way, he says, why should thou destroy thyself? Matthew Henry said, as fools often do by meddling with strife that does not involve or belong to them. Well, what do we call those people who are overwise? We call them busybodies. I'm going to micromanage your life. I told the Sunday school class this this morning. Look, when I was growing up and I reminded them, and I like to do this every once in a while, I am the younger brother. But you know what younger siblings like to do? To tattle, right? And mother told me one time, you have your hands full just making sure James does right. Okay? And you know what? That's true. The apostle Paul said, I bring my body under keeping subjection lest after I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. I got to watch. I don't have time to micromanage your life. All right? I've got to keep an eye on me and make sure I do right so that I can stand up and preach the word of God. But there are people who want to micromanage other people's lives. And he said, "Don't be that way." And then he talked about overmuch wicked. That's running to the excess of sin and the excess of riot. You're so foolish as to lay yourself open to the law. That's what he's saying. He said, "Why shouldest thou die before thy time? You know There are all kinds of foolishness that people can get involved with that will cause them to die before their time. And I don't have time to name all of the ways you can do that, but you can do that. But here's what a child of God can do. First John chapter five, verse 16 says, there is a sin unto death that a child of God can get so out of fellowship with his heavenly father, be such a disgrace to the cause of Christ, be such a detriment to the gospel, that God would say, you're better off with me, come on home. And God will take him out. I believe that with all my, God's word says that. Now, here's the other thing he says about living in this absurd world and living wisely in this absurd world. And it's in verses 21 and 22. And here's what those verses basically say. If you know you're right with God, don't worry about what other people say about you. Amen. Listen, people are going to talk. And people are going to talk about you and are going to talk about me. You know, the old joke is that for Sunday lunch, most people have roast preachers. You know? uh, sometimes I'd just like to be a little fly in the car or on the wall at the house listening to what people say. Don't worry. If you're right with God, don't worry about what people say about you. Don't eavesdrop and try to listen in because I will guarantee you you're going to get your feelings hurt. We will get our feelings hurt over what we hear. He said, your servant might even be cursing you. Cursing talks about talking bad about you. He said, just don't worry about it. Be careful about wanting to know what people say, because if they speak well to you, you know what that, or if they speak well about you, you know what that's going to do? It's going to lift you up with pride. All right. If they speak evil of you, that's going to incite your passion, your anger, So don't worry. You know, my attitude is, if you're talking about me, you're leaving somebody else alone. (laughs) And I really don't care. Now, I want to be respected, and I want to be loved, and I want to be the kind of pastor that people can speak well of. But if they don't, and I know I'm right with God, it's not hurting me. It may be hurting the person that's doing the talking. To be always wanting to know what other people say about us sets us up for a false standard that can lead us astray. I think, confession time, I think there have been times in my ministry as a preacher and as a pastor that when I got up to preach, I, I really wanted to... Well, here's what I call it for preachers. It's called job security. If I preach this and it upsets the wrong person, W wanting to get a new preacher one day and I won't be him. Okay. And I think I've been guilty of that sometimes and I've tried not to begin to, you know, I've prayed, God, make me an Elijah. I won't be an Elijah. <laughs> right. And here's why we shouldn't worry too much about what other people say about us. And I shared this on the Facebook page just the other day. You know, this is verse 22. You know that you've talked about other people and most of us do, don't we? so-and-so said this about me, I'm so angry. Hey, get over it. You've talked about other people. You may have even talked about that person that you heard talked about you. Get over it. Learn to live with it. People are going to talk. And people are going to talk about us and we have talked about others. James chapter 3, verse 2 says, For in many things we offend all, if any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Now look back to verse 20. For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. James said, Oh, if you could just control your tongue, you would be spiritually mature. Wouldn't have to worry too much about sinning. But the word of God says, there's not anybody that is perfect upon this earth. And we know that. And so we have talked about others. Others talk about us. And here's what I've found. Those people who talk about others the most are the first ones to get upset when they hear their name mentioned. Well, he's talking about me. She's talking about me. Yes, but how many times have you talked about them? And this is what I shared on Facebook. And I put it in here just the way I shared it. And you can go back and look at it. When we feel we have been wronged, evil spoken of, we need first to examine our own selves, whether we have done as bad or worse to others. We tend to forget that. And if we'll be angry at ourselves for talking about other people, we will be less angry at other people when they talk about us. Amen. So he just says, look, somebody's talking about you. Just remember, you've done the same thing and get over it. And again, in verse 19, he says, This godly wisdom strengtheneth the wise more than ten mighty men which are in the city. It will give us the strength to prevail. Now, We're going to wrap up with verse 29. Wonderful verse. Lo, this only have I found that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. God did not create this world in chaos, and God did not create man a sinner. God created a perfect world, and God created a perfect man when he created Adam. God created man in his, God's image. Okay? And again, that's sinless. But he says, what has mankind done? Mankind has sought out many, many inventions. That word invention, sought out means to strive after, search for. Inventions is from a word that means to plot or contrive, usually in a malicious sense. Hence, from the mental effort to think or to regard. Here's what man has done. He's found so many different ways to sin. By the way, there's no new sin. You know that. There's no new sin. There's only new names given to old sins. And when we start thinking about mankind searching out inventions in ways to go against God and to disobey God, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 comes to mind. And you know what Genesis 6 5 says? And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That sounds like today, doesn't it? Every thought was evil was against God, was opposed to God. So Solomon says, God created man this way and man became this way by his own effort. And as we come to the end, as I said, of the seventh chapter, it seemed like Solomon's beginning to turn. He's turning back to wisdom above the sun. He's turning away from wisdom under the sun. Because again, verse 20, there's not a just man on the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. And he laments life under the sun and sees the vanity of the world and the vanity of worldliness, the absurdity. And so there's hope for Solomon. We know that he was a good man, he prayed for wisdom. He got away from God, but I believe he came back to God. And there was hope for him. And here's the reason I believe he came back to God and that there was hope for Solomon. You look at chapter 12. I said we're going to hear these verses several times in this series. But chapter 12, verse 13, he ends Ecclesiastes this way. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Solomon's coming back to God. God is sovereign. God is in control. You don't question God. You may ask him, what do you want me to learn from this? What are you showing me? But you don't ask him, look, God, why did you do this to me? And accuse God. So he's coming back to where he was. And by the same token, there's hope for anybody that's away from God today. Somebody has never come to God through repentance and faith in Christ. There's hope for them. They can be saved. You know, I think as long as there, as far as we know, now God knows whether somebody has, to use an old phrase, send away the day of grace. But so far as we know, as long as there's breath in that body, there's a chance for somebody to be saved. Amen. So if somebody has never repented toward God and put your faith in Christ, you need to do that today while there's breath in your body. But what about a child of God that's gotten away from his heavenly father? There is forgiveness. And there is a welcoming back. I think there was a song we used to sing. I can't remember really what the name of it was, but the idea was God standing there with open arms. Come on home, my child. I'm waiting to welcome you back. I think of the prodigal son. Took his inheritance, went to a foreign land, spent it all, ends up eating slop with the pigs, basically, you know. But when he went home, where was daddy? Standing out there, arms open. My son's come home. And there was rejoicing in the house. I don't care whether you've gotten away from God or, well, I guess if you've gotten away from the Lord's church, you've gotten away from God, you know. <laughs> but you know what? The same thing is there. I've pastored people who've gotten away from the Lord and, and gotten away from church and talked to them, and I say, well, I, I'm just sort of embarrassed about going back because, you know, everybody's going to want to say welcome back and pat me on the back you ought to love that because you know what that means that means those folks care about you and those folks have been praying for you and those folks want you there and so here we have Solomon coming back to God and here we have in this message God holding out his arms to anybody who's lost to anybody who's saved who's out of fellowship with him saying come on home my child I want you back